0: Brigadier Radio with our good friend Gerald Ashley, coming to us from sunny England. Gerald, how's how is it going? Well, two or three
1: days of sunshine in England, and we get newspaper headlines of you know tropical conditions, heat wave, meltdown. Um, For people who don't know where the temperature really is um, in old money, it's about it's probably about seventy-five degrees Fahrenheit. And that, that sounds perfect.
0: Was, that sounds like you know, uh, Southern California. Sounds yeah, great.
1: No, it, yeah, but England, you know, this is almost the end of the world uh, in terms of, of the you know, huge amount of heat we're suffering from. So um, it's actually nice weather, and we've had five days of it, and that's probably been summer. But um, it's <laughs> probably going to go now. So there. You well,
0: go. My favorite summer is uh, in Scotland, where it's 65 and rainy. That's like my favorite kind of summer. <laughs> really?
1: Yeah.
0: I put on a nice sweater. Go for a so walk then, about. So,
1: given your your favorite country, do you want to go and live in Vancouver or somewhere like that? Cause it's I've actually
0: great. never been to uh, Vancouver, but I, I hear it's lovely.
1: It's beautiful, but it's always raining.
0: Yeah. Well, I like a bit of rain. I don't like constant rain. I like uh, I like weather though. I like things that change. You know, I don't like. Yeah. I've lived in Southern California, and uh, literally, it's nearly 75 every day and perfect, and um, I don't know. It can become a bit monotonous. It's fun to have a little storm here and there and see it's some good,
1: weather. It's the sort of weather equivalent of Stepford Wives after a while, isn't it? It's, a, it's almost sinister that it's exactly the same every day.
0: Yeah, but I will say, uh, you know, growing up in Michigan and uh, where it's, you know, it could be 32 below in February, yeah. there's something to be said about some nice sunshine in uh, late February. Sure.
1: <laughs> don't, don't knock it, I think they say.
0: All right, here we go. We're going to try something new. We've got, uh, as you know, we've got our favorite flashcards. So what we're going to do is just pick out of the box, randomly, and we'll see what happens first. All the excitement, here we go. Oh my God, voting. So it's good, we got some good elections that happen. we got uh, the French, we had a by-election, we had an election in Colombia, uh, which is pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, we got a forthcoming election in Brazil in October, I think, obviously here in the U.S. in November you want to talk about our friend Macron and what is happening in Paris?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Le petit empereur. He's, um, he's had a bit of a setback in, in global domination. The sun god, god. Is yeah. it
0: over for the sun god?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's a bit of cloudy weather on the horizon. And I think you, the viewers and listeners who will recall, we had the political and economic analyst Helen Thomason at the time of the first election in the presidential elections the first round and even then we started using the dreaded word of cohabitation um, right. which in in english really comes down to one party having a presidency and the opposition in some form having the uh, uh the parliament or the assembly national assembly but it's a little bit more interesting and even that because um the national assembly is quite an interesting crew now it's made up of pretty hard left and uh some fairly radical groups on one side under Mélenchon, and um madame le pen is uh very much on the right i mean the the mainstream media over here have been saying Mélenchon is now the the man that's going to control things but it's worth noting that um madame le pen went from i think eight seats to 80 seats so it's a it's a kind of fractious sort of parliament and I just wonder if that will slow things up in France. We shall see.
0: Yeah, I don't. Obviously, I'm not a uh, French expert, but from my understanding is the president has a lot of power and it was yes. kind of designed that way and uh, more or less the National Assembly is a rubber stamp. But I don't know. Maybe having divided government is good. Here in the States, when we've had divided government, like that is who controls the White House versus the Capitol. there seems to be more productivity or more uh, better operations. So maybe, well, maybe well, it'll be good for France.
1: Yeah, you've got – what I always think is a good idea is to keep politicians out of the way. So anything, <laughs> you know, if we could just ship them off to Antarctica for two or three years, we'd probably all be a lot better off. Um, I, I, you're yeah, right. so
0: maybe not getting anything done is, uh, yeah, a positive. I mean, what, what yeah. other legislation does France need, actually?
1: Yeah, I mean, these guys have been – like in the U.K. in a sense, we've been passing legislation for 200 years, um, and you do wonder – what on earth is left to do or why it's so badly drafted each time i think the thing about the french thing you're right i mean the president has a lot of executive power much more so in the united states far more than a prime minister in the uk um but i think it it just becomes tricky in some areas i mean one of the one of the areas to watch i think is going to be france's relationship with the eu because both the wings in the national assembly are not at all fans of the EU. Right. And, um, we'll just see how that plays out. And o- obviously, I think um, Macron's plan to be sort of king of Europe, you know, takes a slight backward step with this. It's, he's not gonna dominate the scene in quite the way he would like to, I would think.
0: Well, well so. I have to think, uh, and getting back to, I think, is it, yeah, a reflection of, uh, you know, the French electorate wanting to send a message to Macron, or? Did the leftists really have an, a very successful election? Here in this, in this hemisphere, Gustavo Petro is going to take over. He won the Colombian election. He's actually going to be the first leftist president ever uh, of that country. And the vice president is an environmental activist. I mean, it's a huge win for the progressives and the left wing of, right. uh, of the world. Um, I don't know, is that where the politics is going because of inflation, and energy? You know, is, is this, you're uh, I mean, get, we have two elections, you're we have a trend?
1: Out i wonder if we're going to get a form of left-wing nationalism which is where people say things like you know this is our oil and we're not giving it away to multinationals at, at low levels you know so you, you, the, obviously we've seen all this sort of uh, thing play out in venezuela but you may see in other countries that are energy rich become much more nationalistic perhaps about that energy um, yeah,
0: it is interesting about this. I haven't thought about that kind of left-wing nationalism because uh, one hmm. of uh, Petro's ideas is to be a leader in kind of green energy, sustainability, and kind of harness the the resources of South America for yeah. their own good and uh, the development of kind of like second wave energy. Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about this idea of kind of nationalism, whether it's right or left, there's definitely going to be a rise of it We're becoming every nation is really competing on their own, becoming more and isolationist.
1: It, it also gets funded, you know, with oil over a hundred bucks a barrel, you know, money is flowing back in to the economy. So you take the example, where well, let's take Venezuela, which, you know, people forget is the largest, got the largest reserves in the world, bigger than Saudi. Um, you know, when it was down in 20, $25 barrel territory, they were, you know, they were suffering. I would have thought they've got a large amount of money flowing in now. And that tends to prompt more sort of radical action by those sort of outfits um i know it's difficult to say in venezuela whether they're left wing or right wing but they're certainly they're certainly very nationalistic yeah and, um, so this may this this will be it's not a new game for the multinational oil companies but they're they're back right in the middle of geopolitics yet again in fact you know if you and i were running shell or bp or Uh, you know, one of the, Exxon or one of the big Americans. The big pressure over the last few years has been the green revolution and technology and all that. I wonder if the pressure's now gonna be back on geopolitics and security of supply of oil. You know, because politicians are changing their tune on this
0: Well, yeah, and you're wondering if, uh, you know, there's been, I mean, obviously energy and inflation is happening everywhere, right? It's not limited to one branch of government or one system of government or one nation. And it'll be interesting, I think, for me to see what impact uh, Colombia has on the Brazilian election. I mean, Brazil is a majorly important economy, drives the entire South America. Um, What impact will this have, if any, on that election? I think that's going to be something to watch.
1: Yeah, it's going to be we're going to have a Brazil show in the future. And we're looking for sponsors to do it from Rio, obviously.
0: I've, uh, or São Paulo, uh, one of my favorite bars. As an aside, uh, is in São Paulo. It's a Brazilian jazz bar at the Hotel Fasano.
1: Why? Uh, why am I not surprised at your name well, checking you
0: there? You gotta have, uh, you know, you gotta have <laughs> options, and it's part of my hemisphere. I need to spend more time in this hemisphere, which we don't do as Americans. All right, should we go back to the uh, grab bag? Yeah. What do you feel like talking about? How about we talk about? Do we care? Do we want to talk about second order effects again? This is a ah, yes, topic yes. we talked about yeah, Ukraine and some of the outlying problems that were going to come from this election.
1: Yeah, and we um we I think we felt quite happy that our second order view, I think it was back in March, a lot of this has unfolded. And well, let's quickly start with Ukraine. Everybody thought it was gonna be a blitzkrieg, you know, and it's turned out to be trench warfare. I mean, increasingly the Russians are edging forward, but that's all they're doing, but they are edging forward um, and I think both sides are using heavier and heavier weapons and it to me in general as you know I'm not a military type, but it, it's starting to look a bit bogged down and the geopolitical risk to me is that Putin ups the ante and uses chemical weapons and, yeah you know, that that I think then we all worry and then in the background just in case nobody has been watching it. In our first episode, we talked about Kaliningrad, the old Königsberg, right. and the Lithuanian government have chucked a rather big brick in the pool by saying that um, they're going to restrict certain uh, transshipments from Russia to Kaliningrad through their territory because of EU um, sanctions. To me, that's quite a frightening thing, actually. I mean, are they really gonna stop this? Or more to the point, is Mr. Putin gonna have a word and say, do that again, and we'll we'll fire guns? I don't know. In a way, I think it's quite a serious a serious issue. We're
0: well, getting back to, uh, and I think we talked about this from the beginning. I mean, neither one of us thought this was gonna be a quick conflict, uh, You know, 10 months, if not 10 years. It's already been going on for eight. Um, so it seems to be dragging out. Nobody's really moving. It is staggering the amount of equipment that's flowing in there. The US is committing another $45 million to the project um i think here in the states you're actually going to see more and more people asking where is this money going uh, you know we're at 50 billion dollars already what is this money all about where is it going who's getting it, it seems to be a yeah, black right. box
1: and you um, know, where are those dollars really going and of course there's a lot of dollars flowing to putin because of the
0: oil price right you know, and then you're right. I said the Lithuanian situation. I'm uh, optimistic and hopeful that this was not done unilaterally, that the Lithuanians decided to uh, do this in concert with, you know, speaking with folks in Berlin, London, Paris, and DC. Well, you, <laughs> they you gonna, gonna raise this you up. But... Hope
1: so. You hope so, don't you? Good grief.
0: Um, the other thing. There does, it to does take... seem to be pressure growing every day. Like, how do we find settlement in this situation? I mean, you know. Clearly, yeah,
1: I, I, I this can't go on when we looked at second order effects we looked at fertilizer and food and all the rest of it and that is definitely coming up the agenda big time in 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 uh, north africa where there's clearly problems um and the other element which i think you mentioned before and i think you've got the bullseye on this is that if you're the ukrainians your only card really is to play the information game it's almost a pr war yeah and I don't know in the states but certainly in the uk ukraine is starting to slip down the news agenda a little bit no 100 percent. and it's certainly not number one and you know zelensky kind of bashes away every day and why wouldn't he on television but i think he's falling on less interested ears so i wouldn't say deaf ears but i think people are going hey it's ukraine and also if we want to look for some baddies in the world which is always fun i think wall street would just want to wrap this all up the markets want to say "Look, we're fed up with ukraine it's, it's screwing everything up here we need to the world economy's got to get back to some sort of stability so there's all those pressures going on in the background as well i think
0: now 100 uh you know the old sage uh mr 99 year old himself henry, henry kissinger a few weeks ago was like we got to find a resolution on this The CEO of VW famously said a few weeks ago, hey, man, this is like hurting the world economy. This isn't great. This is not good for business. You're seeing more of that. I saw Zelensky this week meet with actor director Ben Stiller in Ukraine, which I just found, you know, I mean, uh, it's one thing for diplomats and heads of state to visit with Zelensky, but now we've got actors that are finding their ways there. Um, you know, I feel for the Ukrainians. There's a story here in the DC Press about the, the just the sheer amount of money that they're spending on lobbying, hiring various folks to keep yeah. this front and center. Um, they're definitely in a tough situation, but it's impacting the entire world, and it's not unreasonable for other actors in this global economy to say to Ukraine and to Russia, "Hey, man, let's find a way to settle this."
1: Yeah, and I, I we still don't know where where Putin's favorite end game is. I mean, it's quite lots of people think it's still the control of um uh odessa and the uh, the, the black sea ports and all the rest of it um, that's a little bit out of the news at the moment but if ukraine becomes landlocked i think they i mean in many ways their economy's stuffed because how do you move all these millions of tons of grain just by train you, no, exactly. you, you, end, you end up with some sort of economic accommodation with Russia for access to the ports. So there's still a lot to play for in this, but you're right, it's a long game. And at the moment, it's kind of one of those slightly dull draws. I mean, that's a terrible way to put it. It's, you know, this is people's lives and things, but it's kind of settling into a trench, to me, a sort of trench warfare situation, but we'll see, I guess. We'll see that. I think we're not
0: really gonna, we're going to see nothing in the short term, but I think this lingers on a bit longer. I agree with you. Okay, let's go back to the magic cup. I'm not looking.
1: Not looking this time.
0: <laughs> I was going to do energy, but we kind of talked about that. Yeah. Let's do... just... Oh, PSYOPs. Yeah, i actually like to talk about this. You did bring uh, you... that up, this idea about this PR warfare. The PSYOPs of it is interesting. Um, is this the first grand information warfare technology battle we've seen, you know, there's reports that the Russians are attacking all kinds of stuff, hacking, you know, making noise. And this idea of like Zelensky every day is meeting with some group to get his cause out there. Um, the information warfare is unprecedented in my mind.
1: Sure. And I I you know, we're back to another one of our favorite topics is, you know, what is the real politique? What are the back channels that are really going on? are the Americans saying to the Russians, look, if if things get really hot and heavy, we can close down your power grid you know we always worry that it's the other way around that we're going to wake up one morning and the lights don't come on but i don't doubt you know the united states is a technological leader in all this stuff um you might say there's a close rival with china but nevertheless the u.s is a formidable um you know enemy if you like or uh,
0: adverse ally we're we're for freedom we're for uh you know we're the good guys here
1: yeah, here we go. You've got, you've got, the, white, you've got the white hats on. Um, the, the, and fair enough. But, I mean, you've also got the technological lead. And, you know, if America wants to shut somebody down, I, I still believe they can do it. And no, so, I agree, Lee.
0: I was at a book event a few years ago with Mike Morrell, who was you know, tied with the CIA. I think he was deputy director. And he was talking about hacks. And uh, he said quite cavalierly, he's like, you've got to know, America's stuff is really, really good. Is the way he said it, like in a very like confident, like like don't sweat it, like we know what the hell we're doing, and to the point where he was like, I won't even plug in my toaster, you know, which like you think about this, like you're just like yeah. Jesus Christ, so, so tied in and
1: yeah, I mean, it, I, as much as we like to criticize everybody and everything, I think you, I think it's reasonable to say that although there must be wastage in the U.S. defense budget, a lot of serious hard dollars have created a lot of serious hard kit, and. That must be a pressure point for the Russians. So, if you're Putin that you 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 maybe poke America so far with a sharp stick, but no further. And that may be the story for the rest of year, the year do we find a point at which you know it actually becomes like really serious and maybe well, we got that yeah,
0: there's even any kind of disruption. there was a, a pipeline, uh, you know obviously the gas pipeline, the continental pipeline situation seems to be i mean it's definitely a hack there to give some kind of bounty to you know get free and uh, any kind of disruption or any kind of you know kind of chemical malpractice or disruption to yeah. kind of any energy part of the grid you automatically now think oh is this some kind of hack are we being i know- mean
1: one one vulnerability for europe in all of this is the transatlantic cables i mean obviously we've got a lot of satellite technology these days but i think it's true to say that western europe is still very um Uh, cable dependent and you may remember or some people may remember a story a few years ago now where uh, a freighter uh, wasn't a military action severed a cable near egypt and it caused all sorts of internet problems all the way down to australia Um, yeah all these interconnections you know there are vulnerabilities on both sides but um and then the other psyops point which seems to have gone away is there was a big campaign to say that Putin was ill and that he was on his last legs and he'd soon be gone that seems, right. that seems to have faded away um, and maybe the feeling was they they weren't getting the Russian domestic audience buy into that or they couldn't get to the Russian domestic audience I don't know but uh, yeah we'll see
0: well and there's a great story there was a story in The Times yesterday uh, Kremlin quote rebranding war in Ukraine. Yeah, Those officials banished Z symbol, um, which is quite interesting. Uh, the, and obviously, I love communications. I've always been uh, quite interested in propaganda and getting people to yeah, do yeah. stuff and nudging and whatnot. And um, I don't know, this stuff's quite fascinating. I know it's it's horrific what's happening, but you know, all these governments are competing with attention. How do you keep a domestic audience engaged? How do you keep an international audience engaged? Um, I with all these if tools it's, uh... and
1: wonder if there's a parallel with the vietnam war where in the vietnam war obviously we had these scenes on the nightly news and it wore down the american public so you know i don't want my son going there and all the rest of it
0: well i think and, what's quite interesting is like we don't, we don't really see that kind of footage at least here in the states we're not seeing like kind of frontline uh yeah. photography or video and i think both sides the russians and ukrainians have done a good job of keeping journalists away from the front lines yeah and we get these random reports leaking out and random photos but it's not the classic kind of there's no journalists to, to my knowledge that are embedded with these forces
1: no and it tends to be the same sort of theme of, of david versus goliath right so we, get, yeah. we get lots of you know fascinating film grim in other ways of guys with shoulder held missiles or are blowing up tanks and things but the ukrainians are not gaining ground yeah and that may be they just feel better doing that style of asymmetric um, uh, warfare, but um, there must be more going on than just that, obviously. And but as you say, yeah, you
0: I, of yeah, we both know a war is happening. And I think actually I, there's a think tank in the UK is that the International Studies or ISI, and I think the British Defense Department has actually done a good job of providing kind of daily recaps. Yeah. But there's no photography, there's no video, there's no audio. Um, it's quite interesting to see these kind of very, you know, formulaic, direct, basic, one dimensional
1: reports. Again, isn't this isn't, again, it's a little bit like the First World War? You know, parallels are, are not always sensible, but it's trench warfare, and there was no real-time coverage as such. There were films that came out a few weeks later, always heavily edited. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, it turned out that it was just a, a sort of street fight, slugging match that went on for years and years and you know, maybe the same
0: here. Yeah, both of us have said, yeah, Like this, this war doesn't really make a lot of sense for the 21st century, but you know, it's yeah. very reminiscent of the 20th or maybe even 19th century. I mean, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a bit of a throwback war for sure. Okay, should we go back to the cup? The cup of truth, the cup of justice. What do you feel will like talking about? Nice,
1: will we get a nice one? Let's see what comes out then.
0: Sports television. Sports do you have any interest talking about this? Well, um, let's
1: give it the proper title, of course. Which is money is what
0: I'm about.
1: It's nothing to do with sport at all. You and I disagree on this a lot. Or well no, I'm just indifferent to it and I know you're hyper excited by all this stuff. Um I don't know which is the one that is either the most exciting or most damaging, but as a as not a sports nut, I find the golf situation very interesting. The sheer- I'm not- sheer yeah. amount of money involved is just it. But Phil Mickelson's going to make, what, a couple of hundred million bucks or something. I mean, I... Yeah,
0: guaranteed just to yeah. uh play golf eight times, you know, uh eight times three, 24 times a year. Do
1: you know, I had, golf, I had golf lessons as a teenager, and I wish I'd stuck at it a bit longer now. Uh, <laughs> and um it, it just, you know, the, uh, well, we've seen it, you know, the classic example has been the Premier League, where money came in and it completely changed the game, you know English football isn't English football now; it's football played in England, which is kind of different and i you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, but is it Apple who' are going to put a load of money into u s soccer
0: yeah, correct, so no, you're spot on like last year the uh, there was that idea about the super League being launched where you have, like say the twenty best teams in Europe just play independent of the national leagues. And there's this huge idea of fandom. And you're right. I mean, the Premier League is just, it's just English. It's football played in England, but it's a global sport. And yeah. it's yeah. interesting that somehow my fandom for Manchester United is less because I live in the U.S. as opposed to somebody who lives in Manchester. And we're seeing that all over sports. I mean, all these leagues are desperate to go global. Last night with the NBA draft here in the States, I'm not, you know, there's 32 kids picked, 64, I guess, between the two rounds. I don't know, probably a third of those kids were from Europe, you know, which is fantastic. The, the Rookie of the Year in the National Hockey League is from Germany, which I, I'm like standing, really? the best the yeah, best future player in the NHL is from it's Germany.
1: A, it's got a lesson for the wider economy.
0: Yeah, 100%, just the globalization, the reach, and uh, yeah, you know, and some kid from Germany becoming the best hockey player is fantastic. You know, the,
1: old, the old days when I started my career in banking, a competition was everybody in the UK they Right there may have been a few people from overseas. But now it's a global competition. If you want to get into a graduate entry of a big, you know, law firm or investment bank or whatever, the pool of potential people now is is kind of frightening, actually.
0: Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I certainly wouldn't have got through the door. And it, well, you'd be in the top I disagree You're in the top 15,000, you know, minds of the world that's pretty
1: cool absolutely you must be my agent one day um but i think um uh, you know that competitive edge that money brings you can't deny that i mean it is the ultimate motivator this has got a spin-off as you say in other industries because you know people said oh well i don't have to go into the office anymore i can work from home well maybe there are people who can work from home in india or estonia or Thailand, who can do it equally as well as you, but for, you know, 20% of the cost. Yeah. And and I think that's coming down the road at some point.
0: And getting back to the yeah, the Apple deal is quite interesting. So Apple's going to spend two and a half billion dollars to support major league soccer, which on any given ranking is probably only the 15th best league in the world. It's not even the top 10 soccer league. But the the people that support MLS here in the US tend to be educated, high affluent, they love Apple products. So this Apple deal is going to give all the kit, you know, all the watches, the iPads, the iPhones, all this stuff to the players and teams, and they're going to stream every match on Apple television. So it's really quite interesting because the soccer league is going to leave traditional television and just go to the cloud to broadcast the yeah, I mean, games. What you, that's that's what quite do, interesting.
1: You know, what do you do if you're one of the terrestrial TV companies like ABC or the BBC or any of these guys? How do you bid? against this sort of amounts of money I mean correct you know because you can't deliver the audience again I know I always turn things back to finance or money but this is an analogous to how IPOs happen when you do an IPO you want to go somewhere where they can deliver the investors now in this case they you're delivering the audience it's not the 50,000 people in the stadium it's the 50 million people on iPhones or whatever the 500 probably
0: And it's Um, also a reminder that Apple is in a race to bring more need for their products, right? Like, oh, I need more Apple products so I can watch the soccer or watch these television shows. It's it's an interesting dynamic where before they would launch a product, leave it up to the end user to figure out how to use it. Now they're, like, creating hooks to, like, get you the only way you can use this content or view this content. is through the. And they've always
1: been a sort of closed system, you know. It took a long time for them to open up to microsoft products and, all the rest of it. and they are they're like bloomberg they're a, they're a they're a closed system but if you if you can get a monopoly on the right content i mean who else is going to be able to if i want to watch a main mls uh game now anywhere it's going to have to be via apple isn't it There's no correct
0: to... yeah yeah so it's ending. so our good friend uh, chad munich works for fc cincinnati so you need to adopt, if you're going to adopt the MLS team, Gerald, I suggest you pick FC Cincinnati. Well, I, I,
1: I have to admit, I've never been to C- Cincinnati. I don't know if I want to go or not, but I'm heavily influenced by the Steve McQueen film, The Cincinnati Kid. So There you go.
0: It's all coming together. MLS, Athl, yeah. soccer, Steve McQueen. There all you go. The,
1: all, all the stars are becoming aligned.
0: Well, should we do one more topic or should we do reading and watching? Reading and
1: watching. Um, well, I'll go, I'll go first. And as Here we go. Reading and watching, yeah, our, reading favorite, and
0: watching
1: our favorite and, segment. And um, another one off a bookshelf, which I have read again not many years ago. I think it was given a birthday present a couple of years ago. It's a semi-famous book from 1932. You know I like to keep up with things. Um, it's, <laughs> by, um, it's by a British diplomat with a great name called Duff Cooper. And he's written what is considered the definitive book on the French Prime Minister, Rebecca de France again, of Talleyrand. And Talleyrand's a very interesting character because he went all the way through the revolution, all the way through the, the Bonaparte era and out the other side. And he changed sides about five or six times. And in a way, it's, A, it's a good read. And you know his skill, his diplomatic skill in steering around um revolutions victories and defeats and it may also be a bit of a primer for those of us who are continually uh, mystified by how france works and i think think what what comes out about france is it's a it's a well like a lot of things it's a collection of very strong special interests and it takes a special person to be able to ride all those horses at the same time you could say de Gaulle did it for a period of time, though in the end he came unstuck. And clearly, Monsieur Macron, that is his kind of his, um, his reason for being in politics. But it, it does show that, that France is a, is not an easy uh, um, cu- country to manage. And so, although this is all about the events of what, 210, 220 years ago, a lot of it, as is always in these cases, um echoes back to where we are now so it's a good read and it's light it's not one of these dull heavy history books it's a light book
0: well i think france is it's a consequential country it's been super important for our nation uh you know there's only two paintings in the house of representatives one of them is the french general lafayette which is pretty telling um yeah i think we're still living in a very kind of french world you know i mean obviously we we live respectively, but, um, you know, you can't escape Napoleon. I think we're just 200 plus years from uh, just recently from wa- from Waterloo. So, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's quite, I, I think that sounds like a great book. And it's
1: always been a pivotal country because, I mean, it's always been this business of its relationship with the rest of Europe and indeed its colonies. And in many ways, its colonies are much more still colonies than certainly the British or very much the Dutch experience where it's or Portugal has all faded away and Spain. But France, in a way, is still a, got a colonial edge to some of these things. Um, in terms of, I haven't been watching anything because I've been lounging around in uh, Cornwall, which um, is a nice sort of holiday destination, and um, I thought we could put up on the show notes um another long-term theme to watch which is the sudden not sudden but the steady rise of fine dining in parts of you know seaside britain and cornwall's a good example of this people who you know viewers of the uk will obviously know a guy called rick stein who's uh, he's built quite a big empire in padstow but he's not alone he's having a he's having um, a sort of catalytic effect of other sort of michelin star um restaurants opening uh along the sort of cornish coastline and so i was a bit surprised this is another quiz night question you know how many michelin star restaurants are in cornwall 20 years ago people were fall about laughing uh <laughs> the, the, the answer is 42. now i don't know how many there are in london but you know that's a that's a serious number of michelin star restaurants. So if global warming continues, um, maybe Cornwall is the new south of France. It gets better weather and it has decent food. So there you go.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I've only heard wonderful things there. I, I don't know if I've actually been to Cornwall proper, uh, but no, it sounds delightful. I know the, uh, G, the G8, the G G20, I don't know, what was there last year? Yeah, Morris it was, was the big conference there. a
1: pre-COVID bash there, didn't it? It was yeah. like 2019. And um, they just kind of pranced about on the beach and issued lots of very important statements which nobody can remember, not even the people who, who wrote them or, or read them out. Um, which is one last little point about French politics: is you know we took. I, I'm I'm of the view we have far too many summits. We forget <laughs> that the, yeah, yeah, summits. We need to have a tax on them or something. Uh, the first summit I think was in seventy. 70- or 74 and it was a quantum and it was a reaction it must have been 74 it was a reaction to the um the oil shock and the fact that this is when g7 got going and in a way i you know it's always good to talk and get people together but do you not think we have too many of these now i mean you know
0: well we're about to uh next week you know i think we got the uh, nato summit we've got a g7 summit in germany, yeah, these germany not- like
1: these things are not summits. They're minor hills, in my view. You know, they're, they're being... Know. You, far
0: you're far. so... Uh, I'm pro-summit. I like nothing better than a yeah, hotel yeah. lobby bar to a diplomacy yeah, Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: well, I've got... Here's what my next book is going to be, Sonic Boom, which Boom. is about Warner Brothers. All oh, right. Um, the history of Warner Brothers, from Hendrix to Prince to Madonna, Fleetwood Mac. So this is kind of like when records were great and fun and um i don't know looking forward to that i've always been a big fan i've gotten into uh vinyl reluctantly my buddies bought me a turntable a year ago and it's. We're been... talking
1: about um well the, the film studios were burbank weren't they and do they, yeah. um, did they have recording studios there as well i've, I've got well, yeah, but
0: I, most of the record like Capitol records get that iconic building in hollywood which is on the yeah. other side of the hill um yeah. Yeah, Hollywood and Vine, and yeah, nothing better than a good rock and roll story, and uh, I've never really understood the record business. It doesn't seem, it seems super sexy. It doesn't seem very profitable, especially for the artist, um, but it should one, be a good book.
1: One segue into that, it's coming up. The BBC are doing a special, I think it's a four-parter in July, on 60 years of the Rolling Stones,
0: so um, that's one Yeah, see, Nick, they're still touring. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah, still, they're playing
1: it. They're playing Italy this week, so they managed to
0: get to Italy, <laughs> and we have it. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah, last one before we go. So I'm watching a little show. It's about this restaurant in uh, Freedom, Maine. It's called The Lost Kitchen. Uh, it's a little episodic series. I'll put a link to it. But The Lost Kitchen, interesting restaurant. It's in Freedom, Maine. It's about 90 minutes north of Portland, so it's way the hell up there it's in the middle of nowhere and it's quite interesting she runs about only about eight weeks eight to 12 weeks because the, right. the season is essentially summer through early fall she does four meals a week uh only serves 40 people uh it's highly recommended amazing food but the only way you can get a reservation is you actually have to send a postcard to a free domain and they do a drawing they do a random drawing and they say hey do you want to have dinner and uh you know you pick your date and you go from there but it's amazing what uh, chefs are doing now. I think you're right. I mean, to have like a world-class restaurant in the middle of nowhere, Maine, it's quite interesting. It's, it's amazing what these chefs are doing. And, you know, fr- frankly, I'm always blown away about how inexpensive it is to eat world-class food. I mean, to go to this restaurant is only 200 bucks plus, uh, you know, money for a nice no, bottle I mean, of wine, but yeah, it's pretty I mean, amazing.
1: It, it is. And it says something to the quality of food that's being produced, you know, in terms of in, ingredients and all the rest of it. And there's, Maybe that's a good spin-off from the the, the sort of green revolution. But, yeah, so um, I I love the idea I have to send a postcard in and hope to come out in a draw.
0: That's great because I interview people. Yeah, they get, like, multiple thousands, like ten, twenty thousand 20,000 postcards. And, uh, you know, people do them two, three times a year, and they randomly get selected. And, uh, no, it's kind of cool. All right, so on our bucket, Cornwall for Michelin star. We're going to go to Maine get you down to Cincinnati, so we got a lot of planning to do, and of course we're still waiting for our friends. Uh, the, I know the
1: problem now. I know the problem now. It's the Italian uh, summer holidays. Oh uh, yeah, of course. We're we're stuffed now until at least the middle of September, I reckon.
0: We'll have to wait till September, so maybe uh, we need to pivot. Maybe we should focus our attention on a local television show in uh, Cincinnati.
1: Yeah, if and uh, it's it's Cincinnati or Copenhagen or both.
0: I, <laughs> I love it. Cincinnati, Copenhagen, or what? What not Cornwall?
1: There you go. What, what more? Let's <laughs> go. All right,
0: Joe. great to see you, buddy. We'll see you in a few weeks.
1: Good. Yeah, enjoyed it. Take care.
0: Ciao.